here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. Alright folks, you know what that sound means. It is 4 o'clock on this lovely Thursday afternoon in Carbondale, Colorado and the Roaring Fork Valley and beyond. You're tuned in to Everything Under the Sun, the Sopra Sun's weekly radio program right here on KDNK. And I just have to start our program today by pointing out that this lovely tune in the background that we play every week <laughs> was uh, performed and recorded by Ken Pletcher, who's in the house with us today. Hey, Ken. Howdy. Good to see you. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining on Everything Under the Sun. Um, and I'm also, so I'm your host, James Steinler, and I'm here with my co-host. Gus Richardson. Gus, thank you so much for joining once again. Uh, you've been a steady presence here on Everything Under the Sun. And you know I love to do it. Absolutely. And we have a ve- uh, we have a great issue for you this week, so pick up a copy at the nearest yellow newspaper stand nearest you. Uh, and on our cover is Mr. Lou Dawson, who we have in the studio with us today for a very special story. Lou Dawson has had a storied and uh, intensely outdoors-oriented life. A pioneer of ski mountaineering and alpine touring, in his uh, in this country, he is probably best known as the first person to ski all 54 of Colorado's 1,400-foot mountains, also known as 14ers, a feat for which he was inducted into the Colorado Snow Sports Hall of Fame, originally the Colorado Skiers Hall of Fame. Um, prior to his skiing career, However, Dawson was a high-level climber with hundreds of ascents in Colorado, Utah, and the Yosemite Valley. He has written a memoir, Avalanche Dreams, both about his adventures and exploits uh, and about his personal journey with the family and relationships, with his family and relationships. The book is in the final stages of preparation and will be available in just a few weeks as an ebook and later in paperback and a hardcover versions as well on amazon so look out for that again the uh, name of the memoir is avalanche dreams lou thank you so much for joining us thanks james we're so <laughs> glad to have you here for a week um a little bit more insight into the story uh, we do of course um a story by Ken, mr ken pletcher in the interview starts out on this week's cover and jumps to page four with, for, with a great interview that ken was kind enough to uh, consolidate on for a um, three quarters of a page, <laughs> which is difficult to do. It's a, it was a it was a good exercise. And, yeah, always a good exercise, <laughs> and uh, so much to tell. Um, I'm gonna hand it over a little bit to Ken, uh, but we're just glad to have you and everything under the sun, and we're glad you're alive. <laughs> just because, as we'll find out, as we'll find out, uh, Lou is a bit of an adventure. He's been on a lot of adventures um, and had some close calls, but I won't say any more. Uh, Ken, yeah, thanks. Um, I'm gonna ask. We'll ask some questions that will touch on um, items that were not we were not able to include in the article, as well as some that were um, some of the higher uh, or more important. Uh, features. Uh, but the first thing I wanted to start out with was just a little bit of your background and how you got into this, um, you know, this out, outdoor adventures lifestyle. I mean, you, you were growing up in Texas and then your family moved to Aspen and uh, in the 1960s. And uh, you somehow took it upon yourself to go to the hills. Yeah, well, like a lot of these kind of things 
happened. It was with a with a man. It was a lot to do with my father. Um, mm-hmm. He was a big outdoorsman when he was younger, and um, when he moved to Texas from actually from New Jersey, and when he did, he was he just embraced the outdoor lifestyle, lock, stock, and barrel for for a few years, and we would travel all over Texas and just hunt fossils and go down to Big Bend National Park and look for lost silver mines and things like that. Mm -hmm. And then he decided to move the whole family in 1966 to Aspen, Mm -hmm. where he immediately embraced the mountain lifestyle. And that had a lot to do with him having volunteered, enlisted with the 10th Mountain Division soldiers back during World War II which he didn't have a great time with and actually deserted, but he never lost his love for the outdoors, mm-hmm. even though he had some, some mental, eventually had some mental problems and things that mm-hmm. were, that were hard on the family. Mm-hmm. So then you, um, at, uh, not long after you had moved here, you, um, you attended the Ashcrofter camp. Can you talk about that yeah, a little bit? I was, Which is a very cool sounding place. <laughs> my my dad had a lot of mountaineering literature. He was an armchair mountaineer, and I would read all those books and just developed a passion for mm-hmm. for climbing before I ever climbed. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to get up there and be the climber. Um, and I, we were living up Castle Creek, and there's Highland Peak, you know, where the famed Highland Bowl is now. Which mm-hmm. I would have some later experiences with. I've heard. Um, <laughs> we'll get to that. Soon. Yeah, but in, in that day, it was just this big mountain near our house. I was, uh, I think, I was sixteen years old, and uh, maybe fifteen. Yeah, and so I went out and climbed that mountain, and, and I got back after dark. And in the meantime, my mother had called the sheriff, and he'd arranged a, a search oh, party gosh. with fifty men that were going <laughs> to head up to this mountain. <laughs> And it was clear that I needed some training because we didn't, you know, <laughs> that time I made it back, but they knew I might not make it back the next time. So it just happened that up at the end of Castle Creek Valley, there was a boys camp called the Ashcrofters. <laughs> and it was actually the Ashcrofters Mountaineering School. So talk about serendipity. <laughs> My parents and one relative of mine decided, well, you know, we're going to send Lou up there for the summer. It was a, it was a real summer camp. You stayed, I think, for almost two months. Hmm. And uh, we rock climbed and backpacked and went through the Elk Mountains, went down to the San Juans, did a rock climbing camp up, in, uh, up at Independence Pass. And that's where I, I really started my rock climbing with hmm. some really good coaching. Hmm. And that allowed me to really jump-started my rock climbing for the next about 10-year period, which is the, you know, length of my rock climbing career. Mm-hmm. Well, and then um, the next, that winter, I think my, did my microphone drop out? You're, uh, oh, no. Still, you're still coming in loud and sorry, clear. Sorry, it's just the cord here. Okay. Um, <laughs> sorry about that. So um, that winter, you decided you were gonna. You had one of the things you had done while you were with the Ashcrofters was go to Conundrum Hot Springs, and you decided to go back and ski to it in the winter. Uh-huh. Exactly, and, and and why not? <laughs> <laughs> had a lot of people done that at that point. Or not? <laughs> <laughs> they did occasionally, but okay. not very often. And yeah. I, I didn't know anything about doing that kind of ski touring i'd huh. never gone out overnight by myself in the winter in the in the in the wilds 
And I just got a, a you know, a, this yearning to do it because I'd seen it in the summer with the Ashcrofters. And what a beautiful place. You know, that pool's right, up, right at Timberline with the, with the flowers mm-hmm. growing around it and the Castle Peak rising up like mm-hmm. some big castle, as it's called. Right. <laughs> it's just an amazing place. It really is. That's why it's at presently it's super popular, a little Apparently a little too popular. That's what mm-hmm. I hear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but in any case, I had this this earworm, I, we, I called it, as you guys are familiar with from your profession. Yes, sir. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, and I had to get up there in the winter. And my father had some Army surplus backcountry skis, which I wedged some boots in, and I grabbed my backpack. I'd gotten used to backpacking at the Ashcrofters. And some gear and my father's sleeping bag. And just headed up the Conundrum Valley. Solo. You know, it took me two days to get to the hot springs. Ended up lost in the forest, climbing over logs and things, and and then crossing avalanche paths, of which I knew nearly nothing about. And at one point, even, I was in an avalanche path. It was a big gully, and I skied down into it and then then flipped, did a forward flip when I hit a bush. Oh, jeez. So I was laying there right in the middle of the avalanche path, looking up the mountain, Gosh. and I knew I knew it was an avalanche you path. You did, and I okay. Was, yeah, I was thinking, oh man, you know, if if things are this is this is just crazy, and yeah, I know things are going to fall someday, so I better be careful. <laughs> yeah, you know. yeah. So that kind of gave you an inkling about uh, getting some training in terms <laughs> of alpine touring and uh, or yeah. Alpine and when I got to the hot springs, I had a, a pretty profound experience. Okay. being up there by myself and wading into the springs at night with the wind blowing the snow oh my around my gosh, legs. And, I could imagine it. You know, and, and just thinking to myself, you know, this is this is it and feeling more than thinking that it was that it was my calling to do that kind of stuff. And indeed that's what happened for the for the next half a century. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. And well you you uh lucked out that time, but uh Yeah. Um, <laughs> you've had uh, a, a couple other experiences, one in particular um, that's a fairly major <clears throat> uh, theme in your book, uh, which is called Avalanche Dreams, surprisingly. Uh, <laughs> and um, you got caught in an avalanche yeah, do you, and, and survived it. You're here today. Yes. <laughs> and these, the problem with these avalanches is, you know, a lot of a lot of backcountry skiers and climbers survive avalanches, but quite a few don't. Mm-hmm. And those that do, it's it's hard. You know, you, the dreams come and the survivor guilt mm. and all that kind of stuff. And what happened to me is I was up, um, actually, it was before Highland Bowl was open as part of the ski resort. Okay. It was, it was inbounds, out-of-bounds terrain, they called it, which was within their... Inbounds, outbounds. Their boundary, but never open to the public. And we used to go up there. This was 1982. And we used to go up there and and poach the bowl. We'd sneak in there in the morning and ski the pow and sneak out before we'd get caught. And if we got caught, they would write us up as trespassers. It was pretty serious. Really? You'd get fined in the whole nine yards. Huh. So it was kind of this race, race for the powder, and you know, a, really a kind of lame activity when I look back on it. I mean, it was a pretty adventurous for a twenty-something, absolutely, or 
at that time I was I think I just turned thirty. So yeah, okay, maybe and also I was, bending the uh, my rules. emotional maturity was a little stunted. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. You're in good company. <laughs> <laughs> but in any case, you know, it's, it, it was no laughing matter. That's for sure. And mm-hmm. um, I went and started down the thing and. Uh, what I started what I would call a fairly large powder avalanche that took me all the way down the bowl into the flats, Jeez. broke both legs. And the no. only reason I survived lying there at the bottom of the bowl getting hypothermia was there was a guy on Red Mountain up above Aspen that happened to be looking at the, at the mountain with his telescope mm-hmm. when the avalanche happened. And he uh, he called 911 when he saw this thing. He, he'd watched my friend of mine and I, Izo, and they'd seen me get caught. And he saw he actually saw me riding the avalanche once or twice, you know, kind of just a flash of red and black. <laughs> and he called 911, and when my buddy climbed back up out of the bowl to get help, he thought he was going to have to go all the way down the ski area to find a phone and stuff. Right. And the ski patrol was already up there uh, organizing wow. a rescue. So wow. this guy at Bob Leemacher that had, had that telescope s- saved my life. And you always remember his name, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, he, and Bob lives here in town. Okay. Mm-hmm. Have you be, uh, did you know Bob before the avalanche? No, I didn't. That's how you came to know yeah, each other. No, I didn't. But I, when I was writing my book, I spoke with him on the phone a few okay. times, which was really fun. Yeah. And mm-hmm. kind of recreated his experience, wrote it as a little narrative that's with, built into the book. You know, had you spoken with him before you reached out um, for the book? Yeah, I, I'd seen him at a party or something. Okay. I, I have a vague memory, and he huh. he'd introduced himself. Oh, and really? I was like, oh man, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> but you know what's sad about this is, I think it was the following year there were three ski patrolmen who um, who went over there into the bowl to do avalanche research. And they started an enormous avalanche, like much bigger than mine, wow. and all three of them died. Mm. Yeah, yeah, so even people who are trained and have that training. Yeah, and this stuff is, you know, th- there's a whole thread of these these tragedies run through the, the mountaineering and ski mountaineering world. And it's it, there's a lot of PTSD that goes on with it that I don't think people are in denial about and things like that. Mm. And then the, the safety issues are myriad they, they mm-hmm. never end, you know, all the judgment calls and how you go about being safer and mm-hmm. and eliminating human error, essentially, which, of course, is impossible, but you try. Is the technology uh, and the advancement in terms of skis and obviously beacons, uh, has it just become more safe, do you think? Yeah, it has. Um, the statistics show that. But, you know, it's easy to depend too much on technology. Mm-hmm which happens with any machinery, whether it's an automobile or or a skis, and hmm. ski, ski gear. And, and haven't you mentioned to me, or and I think even an article I wrote about avalanches recently, that the advances in technology and skis has made people maybe a little more, and, and the forecasting has made people maybe a little more bold than they ought to be sometimes? Yeah, that's that... that heuristic of getting more comfortable with more risk because you think you're more defended against it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's some truth to that, but most of the people I've skied with over my life have been pretty similar in caution, whether they had a helmet or not, Mm -hmm. or had an avalanche airbag or not. Mm -hmm. And all that stuff does add up to 
to have reduced the accident rates, and it shows in the statistics, mm-hmm. like I was saying. Mm-hmm. There's an enormous increase in the number of people backcountry skiing now, and there has not been an enormous increase in the number of avalanche deaths. So that's been really wonderful to see because that's a wonderful sport. Yeah. It produces a lot of value in people's lives. And for it to be that dangerous is kind of tragic. So you like to see it be safer. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting, uh, a very interesting perspective. And just for our listeners, you are tuned into Everything Under the Sun. Um, this week we have our uh, special guest, Mr. Lou Dawson, a um, – Snow, Colorado Snow Sports Hall of Fame inductee, as well as uh, the author of an upcoming memoir, Avalanche Dreams. Um, so thank you for staying tuned to Everything Under the Sun. Yeah. Um, maybe we can do... Um, talk a little bit about a couple of happier things, especially the second one. You, you, you skied, or you, I, excuse me, you climbed Denali twice in uh, your lifetime, once as a young man and then once as a 58-year-old. The first time was fairly arduous and um, pretty scary, but the second one was pretty fun. Do you want to talk about either or both of those? Yeah, I I enjoy talking about those trips. The the first one was uh, 1973. We were up there for 43 days climbing the mountain from the northerly side. (laughs) And this was a route that had not been done that frequently, actually, when we did it. It wasn't a, like a first ascent or anything, but it was a, a really, Denali is a really tough mountain. And, you know, it's mostly climbed from the southerly side. It's shorter and easier, but still people have really tough times up there. Hmm. And we uh, we flew in with a bush plane with about 800 pounds of food. Wow. And nine guys. Okay. And just set off climbing the thing. We we started to run out of food about two-thirds of the way up and found a Japanese expedition's food cache no that way. they'd left. That's crazy. Yeah, that, that was abandoned. <laughs> wow. You know, we weren't stealing their food. Right, yeah, no, I got you. That's why <laughs> it was still there. Yeah. <laughs> That's luck. <laughs> so we had enough food to finish up the wow. climb, but then we got stranded in a snow cave up oh. at 19,000 feet in a big storm Jeez. for for about more than a week. Oh, my God. Really? And, so you had to hunker down. Yeah, and mm. we, and then we started running out of everything, food and, and gasoline for our stoves and all that. And we had no radio or anything. We were just up on that thing in the middle mm. of nowhere. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, we did get out, but yeah. it was it – was, a little bit too much of an epic. Like, I, I thought it was going to be a great trip, and I was really into it at first, but there was part way up the mountain, I started thinking to myself, you know, this thing is too much. Yeah. You know, I, I think we've, I've had enough of this. Yeah. But you went back. But, but In yeah, 2010. Well, the, the gear changed, and, yeah. the, and it was an easier route. But, yeah, the 22, in 2010, this... A man named Jordan White, who's who is lives up near Aspen, but is is involved in the restaurant industry down here with La Raza and that okay. stuff. Jordan's a great guy, and he was doing tons of mountaineering back then. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, we were talking one day. I'd befriended him, or he'd befriended me, <laughs> and he's he just said, "Oh, Lou, you know, I really need. I want to do Denali because I'm trying to ski as many of the seven summits as I can." And how about you go, You come along and bring your son, Louie, as well. Oh, great. And I thought, now this – oh, the other part of the 
the 1973 deal is we could have skied off the summit. Okay. Mm-hmm. And even back then, skiing from the summit of mountains was had was becoming important to me. Okay. And we thought it would have been a first ski descent. It would have actually been the second. We didn't know that. Huh. But when we organized the expedition, there were um, there were there were only a few of us who were capable of that kind of skiing. And indeed, I, I'm not sure I really was, even though it's it was skiable. It still was, could be steep and have some icy stuff. Mm-hmm. So anyway, when Jordan suggested this, I thought, you know, how do you get a redo like that? Right. We're going to go up there and ski from the summit of that thing, (laughs) and I'm going to do it with my son. Oh, that's (laughs) the best. It was amazing, and it did turn out to be an amazing experience. And my son is very into ski mountaineering and and loves it as much as I do and is super good at it. Okay. So he was sort of like my guide, you know, going up there. It was really cool. And... We got it done and very safely and just in a, in a cup. I think we were up there for like two and a half weeks or something. Okay. That was a fast trip. Yeah, yeah. The, it's faster from that side. And nowadays mm-hmm. the gear is so much better. You know, the, the gear we were carrying was half the weight of what we carried in 1973. Right. And then you have more scientific wherewithal. You know mm-hmm. how to acclimate to the altitude. And there's a medical facility up at the up at 14,000 feet. It's like a tent where they have a doctor and that sort of thing. It's much more civilized. Mm-hmm. And you skied down from the summit. Yeah. And so uh, uh, and you ski down with all your gear. How long does it take to ski well, down? Well, you, you the last you, day when you go to the summit, you just take a little lightweight pack. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then you ski. To, you ski and I don't know. It took us a long time to go up and down because I was, I was pretty wasted. Okay. We were... <laughs> Louis, my son, and I were out. I think we were out for 14 hours. Wow. Uh, but we got it done, and then we went down to this camp, and then we started moving our gear down back down the hill, mm-hmm. which took a, about two days, and then we went to the airstrip and, and mm-hmm. got flown out. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, we only – we this show goes quick, folks, so we yeah. ha- got a couple more <laughs> questions to get through. Uh, yeah. We got about six minutes left. Okay. I wanted to ask you uh, one of the things you talk about in the book that we didn't get to in the um, – article was this uh, event called that you um, have termed the Trooper Traverse that was part of the 10th Mountain Division um, time when when they were over in uh, Camp Hale and they and you want to talk about that a little bit and how you sure. learned about it hmm. yeah there was uh, um, the, the camp where the 10th Mountain Division soldiers trained in 1942 through 43 was over near Leadville um, uh, and they, the soldiers from the camp, there there were more than 11,000 men there, but there was a small group of really good skiers, about 35 of them, I think, that skied over the mountains to Aspen at one point. Hmm. And that trip had become a, somewhat of a legend. And me and a few other guys in, uh, oh, when was it, 2001, to decided we wanted to recreate that trip because it was getting forgotten. And we also thought it would make a good magazine article. Yeah. So so we went ahead and did the trip and had this amazing time and recreating what these guys had done. Wrote a really – this guy named Brian Litz took photos, and I wrote an article for, I think it was Ski Ski Magazine. Hmm. And we had this amazing trip, and at the time – I'd had a, a beautiful experience of kind of re ex, of seeing what it call, called my father to to explore the the ski troops, 
mm-hmm. even though it hadn't turned out great for him. It was it was really wonderful that way. And then a few years later, a, a, guy, a guy hired my, me and my son, Louie, to, to guide him over the trip. Okay. So I, and he was a 10th Mountain Division veteran's son. So we actually did this three, generation, wow. ten, three generations of descendants yeah. skiing the troop, what we call the Trooper Traverse. <laughs> and again, that was a re, it was a really special experience of, you know, kind of experiencing an emotional connection to these guys back then. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, we got a couple minutes left. Uh, I think Gus has a question. And uh, I do. We'll- <laughs> oh, uh, so me and James have heard a little rumor <laughs> that uh, you and Ken Pender, as alongside Ken Pletcher, oh, sorry. Yeah, I've, been, I've been called many things. <laughs> alongside Doug Stenslick, 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 cool, and Paul Anderson, uh, and you play a bunch of old ski songs together. Can you tell us some about that? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we, we have a, a crew called the Super Skiers. Super oh, Skiers. Of which there's only one super musician, which is Ken. <laughs> but the rest are sk- super skiers. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not the super right. skier. <laughs> you now make I, up for it. You know, if I could play the guitar with my toes, maybe I'd be better off. <laughs> but but anyway, yeah, there's a tradition of these old folk songs that um, come from a lot of different sources. There was a guy named Bob Gibson who who wrote a few. He was pretty famous, played in Aspen and stuff like that in the 50s, I guess it was. 50s, yeah, yeah. late 50s. And then there's some earlier stuff from the 1940s and, and that sort of thing. There's a there's a song called Super Skier, another one called Celebrated Skier. It's about a guy bragging, you know, about how great of a skier he is. <laughs> in we the bar. So yeah. much about yeah. and, and, and So relevant. Spewing about it in the bar. <laughs> So and that's been really fun because again it's that kind of recreating your 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 past and your elders, which you know can be really valuable and and sweet. And Ken's been instrumental in that because he. Well, he's a wicked guitar. He's like player. our band. He's like our band leader. <laughs> yeah, we, we have a lot of fun, and we played all of two gigs, as I recall. Um, yeah, at least in public. We um, have played some gigs. <laughs> yeah, one was at the. Uh, um, uh, um, vintage vintage ski, ski world. world when they opened up down on yeah, there. and the other ones at uh, Cripple Creek backcountry <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> which is for Doug's, some reason uh, we haven't the phone has not been ringing no <laughs> oh goodness <laughs> <laughs> well, now the word's out I don't know well you heard yeah the word is out and the super skiers are available for a show near you you could you could get <laughs> give touch, us a lot of advance notice the, the news stock news at sopressun dot com and we'll get you in touch with Ken. Um, <laughs> we do only have a minute left, folks. This song, this uh, and just a reminder quick. about the book. Just want to remind readers about Lou Dawson's uh, book coming out, Avalanche Dreams, uh, which will be filled with adventure and um, and Lou's story. Uh, find a uh, you can find today's interview at kdnk.org uh, and go to um, public affairs shows and look under everything under the sun. Also, look, catch a copy of this week's issue, The Soprous Sun, and there is an interview uh, with Lou Dawson on page four, along with a picture of him and his wife, Lisa. Um, so please pick up a copy of that. And also, if you want to find out more about Lou Dawson and his uh, adventures at, that have already happened and those to come, go to lewdawson.com. And again, look out for Avalanche Dreams on Amazon. Thank you, Lou, so much for joining us today. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Gus. Yeah. Thanks. This has been fun. You're welcome. (laughs) 